0: Romney had been elected in 2012. Would Trump have ever been president? I don't think so. Possibly. Anything's possible, but probably not. So, a lot of you are probably relieved, overwhelmingly relieved, that uh, Trump will not be president much longer. But I kind of think Trump being president is your fault for not voting for Romney. My fault, too. I didn't vote for Romney. Maybe I should have. I was surprisingly a little depressed yesterday when they confirmed Biden. And I've been trying to figure out why. Um, I think it's because I don't think Democrats learned any lessons in the last four years. And now that the... uh, The era of Trump, I don't even know if it's over, the era of Trump, but let's say it's over. If Democrats are just going to not learn any lessons from their loss four years ago, just treat it as an anomaly, um, I don't feel Democrats have really done any soul-searching or really any inquiries into why uh, people voted for Trump last time. So I don't know that, uh, clearly, Trump is incompetent. But, you know, he had to go. But I was almost kind of willing, not that I have any say in it, but, I was kind of thinking, maybe America needs another four years of Trump to really let it sink in. (laughs) Of uh where our problems really are, like if Trump had been reelected um even if he'd eked out you know a a small uh majority of the popular vote, like you know voting it's, voting for Trump was kind of like voting for Biden. nobody is really uh inspired by Biden, not that I know of. Most everyone I know hates Trump. They wanted him out. None of them, really, Biden was not their guy. (laughs) Most everybody, a few liked Bernie. Most of the women I know hate Bernie for some reason. I don't really know why. Um, Or because they hate Bernie bros. They hate Bernie. And it's sort of like, well, Bernie is not his bros, but I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Most were for Warren. Warren. You know, because she's a woman. Um, nobody was for Kamala. But now we've got Biden, which is good enough for most everybody because he's not Trump. But that's how Trump got elected. Trump's got definitely a vocal diehards, but... M- at least half of his people who voted for Trump just voted for him because he wasn't Hillary. You know, Trump being elected was more an indictment of Hillary than it was any support of his policies. And uh, that's really Biden's election. It's just an indictment of Trump. So I don't know. Now we have a milk toast president who inspires no one. He's an an affable uncle who we never think about until he flirts with our girlfriend girlfriend at Thanksgiving. And then we laugh it off and ask how his chemo is going. And he says something like, you know, every day I'm not pushing up daisies as a gift. And then before next Thanksgiving, he dies and uh, we're too busy to go to the funeral. You know, we have have shit to do and uh, we liked him, but... We weren't that close. Hopefully we learned some lessons. But, uh... Yeah, I was oddly depressed. I live in D.C. As soon as CNN announced it, like... Horns were honking. People are out in the streets. It still wasn't, uh... It wasn't like when Obama got elected. Obama's election seemed like a real, uh... You know, that was like winning a war almost. You know, our first black president, America could pat itself on the back and talk about living in a post racial society. <laughs> I haven't heard that term in the last five years, post racial. <laughs> That's a term I have not heard in a while. Uh yeah. Biden gets elected, it was just relief mostly. But I'm I'm a little worried. But, you know, I don't think uh, Biden is going to possibly get us into a nuclear war. (laughs) I didn't really think Trump is going to either, but I guess the best takeaway and what I can be thankful for, since Thanksgiving is coming up close, so let's see what we can be thankful for. I can be thankful Biden is president because almost everyone in my life will not be so fucking anxious all the time. That's been, a little, uh, that's been a little grinding the last four years. It's not really Trump, but everyone around me's reaction to Trump as if he really affects their day-to-day life. And he did affect their day-to-day, day-to-day life because they let him, because they read the stupid tweets. And I think most of their anxiety is not really caused by Trump. It's caused by social media. And everyone's addicted to it. They can't put their fucking phones down. Um, So at least with Biden as president, I'm pretty hopeful that everyone will just chill the fuck out. Not be so goddamn stressed all the time. And maybe everyone can get back to what is important in their actual lives. I'll try to be hopeful for that. Even if in 15 years all of our major cities are still going to be underwater due to climate change. That <laughs> would that was, was going to happen anyway. At least we'll be a little more chill when it happens. Um So last time I uh I think I mentioned I I drove for a stripper for a little bit. So that's the story I'm gonna to tell today in the uh kind of late spring early summer of two thousand two um actually, maybe it was i think it was I don't know, I remember it being kind of cold, like not hot. Somewhere in 2002. Maybe it was... No, it couldn't have been the fall. Because we were getting ready to go to Iraq, so we were busy. Maybe it was like... It was probably just late spring. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, I did start. It was kind of cold, and then by the time I quit... uh, Yeah, that's right. I had to start not wearing sweaters. (laughs) So this was like... Spring into... Yeah, we'll just say spring of 2002. It was post-9-11. Back when America had only two genders. Back when most liberals were cool with gay marriage as long as it wasn't happening in their neighborhood. And uh, back when Islamophobia was still okay. Back when the government used terrorism as an excuse to chip away at the Constitution because COVID didn't exist yet. The good old days. America had been fighting the Taliban in Afghanistan for about six months. Afghanistan was still pretty new. And invading Iraq was in the air, but it hadn't happened yet. Uh, But I was in the army at the time, and we were training as if it was a certainty. We were getting ready to go. We hadn't gotten the word yet, but we were getting our ducks in a row. And uh, that was actually a pretty cool time for me in the Army. We had a a flood of money for training. The government just turned the money tap on. So, uh, I mean, we really just ramped up. We got a lot of badass equipment, a lot of cool training, you know, like like door-kicking training. Like, I'm going to... I'm going to ride on the skids of a of a little bird like Black Hawk Down and have it drop me off on a rooftop and I'm going to like clear every floor, you know, like all day just shooting like so many bullets, <laughs> like blisters, little blisters on my thumbs from uh, continuing to be like loading rounds into a magazine. <laughs> just, <laughs> uh, yeah, that was a good time. And, uh, I also had a fair amount of time off. Um, because a lot of us were coming back from, uh, deployments, you know, looking for Al Qaeda and, uh, you know, all over the Middle East, Afghanistan was the main focus, but you know, we had people going all over, um, um, And then because I think they were pretty sure we were going into Iraq, they also wanted to give us a fair amount of time off. Because most, you know, especially most in my unit, most guys were married and they had families. Um, And, you know, they want to make sure you get enough time with your family because it's, you know, being separated is hard. So when we weren't actively training, there wasn't a lot of bullshit we were doing. We were either training, kind of getting our shit together to get ready to go to Iraq but also a lot of time off, like a lot of four-day weekends. If we were kind of done at 2 or 3 in the afternoon, we'd just go home. Like There was no, like, you have to stick around till 5 o'clock if you didn't have anything specific to do. So even during work, it was a good time, and uh, out of work, we just had a good time, a lot of time off. And because I had some time off, I had a lot of weekends free, uh, and I didn't have any imminent deployments on the horizon and i was also stop-loss so i was supposed to originally i think i was supposed to get out in february 2002 but uh they put the axe on that (laughs) they said dude you speak arabic you are not going anywhere and that is in when you join the military there's always a little in the fine print you sign up for a certain amount of service i think most people do around four years um I did four years and then I re-enlisted when I hit about three years. So I'd signed on for another four years. So I was supposed to, I guess I was... If I had gotten out in 2002, I would have done about seven and a half years. And I was coming up on my time. Um, And they said, dude, I think this... Yeah, I was supposed to get out February-ish. um, In 2002. And it was pretty close. Because it was kind of like... And I was kind of expecting them to stop-loss me. Um, And my unit wanted to know because we had trips coming up to Afghanistan, to Yemen, you know. Um, And they wanted to know if I was going to come along. (laughs) And I was not going to re-enlist. And I was kind of conflicted because I didn't want to miss out on all the fun. But also... I didn't really know what these wars were going to be or how long they were going to go on for. I didn't want to sign up for another four years because um, that also would have put me at over 10 years in the military total. And then at that point, you pretty much stay in for 20. It's like, well, I only have eight or nine years left. I may as well stick around till I can collect retirement. And I did not want to be a lifer. So I was kind of conflicted. I was definitely considering... Um, re-enlisting, but I really was not going to, but then they stopped lost me and it didn't matter anyway. So I was like, okay. So I was kind of like a conscript. I was kind of like in the, my last year in the army, I was, uh, kind of involuntary. (laughs) It's not quite being drafted, but kind of close. I had made plans to go to college and those plans were gone and I had no idea how long they were keeping me. They ended up keeping me like another year but there was no end date it was not hey we're going to keep you for 6 months we're going to keep you for a year or 2 years i had no idea you know so suddenly like i had no ability to make any plans for the future so it was kind of a weird time it kind of messed with my head a little bit um and that's right at that time that's when i kind of decided like i didn't really know what i was going to go to college for I hadn't really thought that far ahead. I also didn't really have time to think that far ahead because we were right after 9 11. I was starting to think about it when 9 11 hit, and then 9 11 hit, and then we were busy. (laughs) Like, I didn't know if there was a future to plan for after 9 11. Um, So I wasn't thinking about getting out and going to college or anything like that. Uh, I probably should have been, but I was very, like, in the present. Um,. So I didn't really have, you know, I had got accepted to a college. I had no idea what I was going to study. So not being able to go wasn't a huge deal. And then I really, then I kind of had time. They stop lost to me, but I didn't go anywhere right away, which was also kind of frustrating. It's like, well, if you're keeping me, send me somewhere like just go blow some shit up. Otherwise, what am I doing here? So I really, then I had time to think about what I wanted to do. And I realized, like, I guess I was kind of sort of thinking I might study engineering. But then I was like, I don't want to do that shit. And then I was like, well, let me write. I was thinking, what can I do now? Since I've got time on my hands, I'm like, well, I've always kind of thought about writing. I don't know, movies or TV or books or I didn't really have an idea what I wanted to write but I'd always kind of thought about writing and I did write a little in high school. I had like one creative writing class, which I did enjoy, but then I never did it again. But I'd always kind of think in terms of stories and I would create little poems in my head and I would just kind of memorize them. And, you know, basically I was writing poetry. I just never wrote it down. It was just always in my head It very, very mnemonic, very kind of lyrical. Uh, They would rhyme. It's just something I enjoyed doing when I was bored in the army. And I was bored a lot. (laughs) So I was like, well, let's try writing. At least that's something I can do now. I can get a bunch of books on writing and just start writing. I don't need anybody's permission to do it. So I kind of started doing that. And then I got it in my head like, well, I need more stories. I need to live more. I need to experience more. And I was just sitting around in you know, Fort Campbell, Kentucky, not experiencing a whole lot because we were kind of in between deployments so at one point we had a birthday party for my team leader and this was at his house so his wife was gone it was just the boys i guess um i don't know where his wife was but so a bunch of us maybe eight or ten of us we were all having a birthday party at his house and somebody ordered a stripper like a classic show up to your door bachelor party type stripper except this was a birthday party um and this girl's name i'm i'm gonna call her alex i don't her name was either alex or diana (laughs) one was her stripper name and one was her real name and then later on when she told me her real name i was like oh well that doesn't help because either of these could or could not be a stripper name. (laughs) You know, just kind of subtly. It wasn't Tiffany or anything like that. Or uh, Micah. (laughs) I don't know how many strippers I I saw named Micah. Um, So I'm just going to call her Alex. Because I think her stripper name was Alex. But I don't remember. No, actually I think Diana was her stripper name. But Alex was her real name. And I was kind of like, well, you could flip that. Anyway. We'll call her Alex. Um, and so she's a stripper. She shows up, you know, she's got like these little uh, little lingerie type clothes on. She's got like a not quite a trench coat, but, you know, that style of big coat. And then uh, yeah, it was fun. So she's a bunch of army dudes sitting around the living room. And then uh, she's giving everybody lap dances. And then there's this dude who's with her. Who I, I assume is kind of like her security guy. But I've never really... I think there's a first... I guess, it's probably the only time, yeah, I'd actually been to a place where they ordered a stripper to show up. Um, I don't know how common that is. It seems like a very 50s thing to do from like TV or movies. Um, but... This guy shows up, and he's like, he kind of had like a like a good-looking frat boy look to him. He was super friendly. He immediately just starts eating the food and, like, drinking the booze there. And I'm like, well, what kind of security guy is this? Uh, and she's there. She's probably there for about, I don't know, an hour and a half, two hours. Um, and, yeah, it was a good time. She, And then at some point I ask her, I'm like, hey, who is this dude with you? She's like, oh, he's my driver. And I was like, how does he, how does he get that job? And immediately she goes, oh, do you want to do it? And gives me her card. (laughs) I take her card. I'm like, well, I don't really want to do it, but uh, thanks. I was just curious because also like, uh, I was very interested in how people made a living, how people got the jobs they got, because I was still kind of like, at some point I'm going to get out of the army whenever they let me get out. And I grew up in the army, my parents in the army. So I had no idea how anybody opened even a business. Like, how do you do a heart? How do you open a hardware store? That was completely foreign to me. Up until that point, everybody, pretty much everybody I'd ever known got paid by the taxpayer. Basically, I grew up a communist. I had no idea how capitalism worked or a free market or anything like that. And then just some girl who makes, uh, I assume, pays her rent by taking her clothes off. And then another guy who drives her around, I assume, also gets a cut of that money. Like, how do these people get into these like you know it's not i wa- i didn't want to do these jobs but i was just curious like how do people make ends meet when the government doesn't cut you a check <laughs> basically how does capitalism work that was my uh that was my big question because it was going to be important to me fairly soon when i got out um so party ends It was like a Friday night and I think Sunday, you know, I'd been thinking about it the whole next day. I'm like, maybe I could do it. Why not? I've got time. Uh, I can at least call and ask questions. So it was like that Sunday I called and uh, I got hired. (laughs) And apparently this guy who was driving her was a stripper. He was just like kind of an acquaintance of hers who was a male stripper. And then he was just kind of with her for, you know, I guess, ostensibly security. Although, I'm like, that dude's not, like, what's he going to do in a tough situation? Because he's just kind of like a, you know, like a skinny, kind of buff, vaguely good-looking dude, you know. He wasn't like a, he wasn't like a Magic Mike, uh, super muscly dude. Um yeah, so she said she didn't like having him along because he wasn't that professional. He was usually late. He drank a lot. <laughs> he like ate all the people's food he showed up to. And I'm like, yeah, I can see how that'd be kind of a pain in the ass. Um and I was like, sure, let me get some let me get some stories, you know. I always wanted to have stories. Um I'm sure, you know, I guess I had some at that point. I never felt that any stories I had were really worth telling again once I'd lived them. It's, it's kind of why I do this podcast. It's like, well, let me go back and find some of these stories and see if they are worth telling. Um, it's sort of like I'm bored by my own stories. <laughs> I already know how they end, so they're not that interesting to me. But especially when I was, you know, early 20s, you know, I really kind of envied older people and older I mean by like 30, 30, 35, who had cool, fun stories. And I remember like I couldn't wait to be 30 so that I would have more stories by then. (laughs) And at this point I was thinking, maybe I should say yes to more things to create opportunities to collect more stories. And uh, I didn't really consider at this point that most really great stories you hear Are kind of about not so great situations. (laughs) Like you have to live through and experience a not amazing situation with conflicts and heart of darkness and anxiety and depression and, you know, struggle. (laughs) Great stories come at the end of a struggle, but you got to make through that struggle first. And I didn't really consider it at this point. To me it's like no, a great story is great while you're ex- while you're living it, which <laughs> usually not the case. And really who gives a shit about a story where something great happens? Like winning the lottery is not a story. It can be the end of a story. Winning the lottery can be the beginning of a story that would be more interesting to me. Like I don't know if it still holds up, but one of my favorite 80s movies as a kid was a a little Richard Pryor movie called Brewster's Millions where he gets millions of dollars and then that's the beginning of his troubles like that was kind of a cool concept Like if your friend tells you a story hey I bought the ticket and hit the Powerball you get excited momentarily and then you're like okay well then what and then your friend goes, well, now I just live happily ever after. Like, that's not really a satisfying story. If your friend goes, well, I won the lottery and then within six months I was bankrupt and then I was homeless and uh, now I just finally paid off my last credit card and I'm uh, trying to get this like shitty one bedroom apartment. I'm like, that's a cool story. Tell me that story. <laughs> I want to hear that story. Uh So I knew I was getting out of the army soon. I was curious about how real people managed to pay their rents. So uh, I called her up and I said, yeah, let's do it. Um, She said she'd give me $50 a night plus 20% of the tips. And the tips come from, she did these like, I just call them stupid human tricks. They were more like stupid vagina tricks. So she didn't do any sex stuff or at least not any like prostitution stuff which is kind of splitting hairs I guess because um all her tricks were definitely sexual in nature but she wasn't fucking dude she wasn't blowing them she wasn't jerking them off so I get everything she was just mostly doing to herself (laughs) which is still sex stuff but I guess it's legal I don't know um so she would do stuff you know and so you hire her she shows up i think it was like 150 or 200 to get her to show up and then you get an hour um and i think it's like 150 or 200 an hour and this was back you know almost 20 years ago so i don't know if the prices have gone up since then um and then but while she's there she really makes her money doing these little stupid human tricks so she'll do stuff like banana blow job. She paid $20. She gets whipped cream. She puts it on a banana. She blows the banana. Everybody has a great time. I think it's... Actually, I think... I think you sit down. She puts the banana between your legs like it's a cock. And then she puts whipped cream on it. And then she licks it off all sexy-like and then blows it a little bit. So it's... She's not blowing you. She's just blowing a banana you're holding between your legs. And then... It was, uh, oh, she did the lollipop trick, which I kind of thought was the funniest. So you lie on your back, and she takes like a Tootsie Pop lollipop. You, she takes the wrapper off. She puts the stick end in your mouth. So the lollipop is sticking up perpendicular to the floor. And then she squats over your face, and with her veg, she fucks the lollipop for a little bit. And then you're just there with a close up gynecological view of her junk. And then she does that for a little bit. And then when she's done, she takes the lollipop and then puts the lollipop end that was in her veg in your mouth. But she gives you, she does it slow and gives you time to refuse. And I guess it's funny because this thing became like a. Almost like a, like a, an ordeal test. Like a trial by ordeal. Like, is this the dude who's going to be like, fuck yeah, give me that lollipop? Or is this the dude who's going to be like, nah, bitch. <laughs> I'm not putting that shit in my mouth. Uh, that was a thing. It's kind of like, do you do the disgusting shot or don't you? Uh, so that was always a fun one. And then she she did a bunch of these. Like, I don't know if I remember them all. Those were the two most popular... And then she'd also do a thing where um, she had a Maker's Mark bottle, she'd put a condom on it, and then she would just fuck herself with the bottle from all sorts of different angles. Um, I remember I asked her why the condom, and she's like, well, if you don't put the condom on there, the open bottle can create a suction of <laughs> effects, and it can get stuck in her vag. And I'm like, oh, smart. <laughs> uh, I, I was like, why the condom? Are you going to... You gonna get like herpes from the bottom? She's like, No, no, no. I just don't want to get it stuck in my batch. I'm like, all right. That would be bad. I did I don't want to have to like drive you to the ER, so. Um, yeah. So she would charge money for these and then I would get twenty percent of whatever she made in these tips. Uh, which I guess came into play later because I thought my job was to just look, you know, kind of intimidating and make sure nobody really tried to gang rape her. But I was also kind of supposed to sell sell people on these things which I'm never been a great salesman Um, so I was not great at that I sold a few I kind of you know after a couple nights I figured out oh this is how I can produce more interest Um, so I was hired yeah she lived in Nashville and uh, I drove her all over the goddamn place Usually to the various suburbs of Nashville, sometimes actually downtown in Nashville. Um, but these were usually like to a house, like a suburban house. Um, the first engagement, that was the term she used for a gig. She called them engagements. Uh, I don't know if it was her term or the industry standard term, if there is an industry st- I don't know if there is an industry standard. But her appointments were engagements. And the first one was a fucking bust. It was, like, disappointing. So I drove her to, like, a hotel room. Really, it's like a motel room. And the door was on the outside of the building. So I think that's a motel. Um, And I didn't actually go in the room. I think there were two or three guys in there. And they didn't want me to come in. They only wanted her to come in. And they looked pretty young. And uh, she asked for ID because, you know, She was nominally responsible. She didn't want to get busted for, like, you know, getting naked for Uh, 16-year-olds. They would not show her any ID, so they were probably high school kids. Uh, And I had seen a similar scene like this in Leaving Las Vegas with Elizabeth Shue. And I was like, this is a bad idea. But she was a pro. She was pretty street smart. Clearly she had no idea of going in there or she had no intention of going in there. Um, So we went back to the car. She called the booker. uh, And I guess their credit card is already charged. So like you pay up front and then she shows up. So she still got whatever. I think she got 50% or whatever of the credit card charge. And then the other half goes to the booker. Um, So she got at least that much money to show up. Um, And it was probably unlikely they would have you know, paid for Kids are usually cheap. I can imagine they would have wads of cash to like get banana blowjobs and shit. So I don't know that she would have made that much money. Um, it kind of doing this kind of amazed me how cheap people are. I, I guess probably to my detriment. I've never cared that much about money, so I'm willing to give up money in order to gain free time, and I'm also willing to hemorrhage money to have a good time. <laughs> Like, I usually don't, but if I decide, hey, I'm having fun this weekend, I don't worry about, I don't pinch the pennies, I don't care. To me, like, you know, having a good time is more important. Well, a lot of people are not like that. Um, it amazed me how cheap people are, or it's sometimes like, they'll try to negotiate. They're like, well, how about $10 for a banana blowjob? And I go, get get the fuck out. You want it or you don't? I mean, yes, it's stupid. I don't know why you'd want it. It's kind of dumb. But if you want it, pay the twenty bucks. What what are you splitting hairs for? Negotiating for a banana (laughs) blowjob? It's ridiculous how cheap people are. Um, Usually, poor people are cheap, and really rich people are cheap. Um, That's what I learned from waiting tables: was uh, poor people and rich people. Upper middle class people are the most generous usually. And it's usually if they kind of grew up poor or lower middle class and then worked their way up to upper middle class or even upper class, they're usually more generous with their money once they're pretty comfortable. Um, Because like, you know, they, they won the long game lottery. So now they don't want to deny themselves. They want to have a good time and they want to be, they kind of want to be like the big person and be generous you know to the to the peons like me who are bringing them fucking jalapeno poppers or potato skins um so it just kind of depended on uh, what was the economics of you know the house we showed up to whether she was going to make a lot of tips or not uh i was not a great salesman so that would how she made out on each gig or on each engagement was more to do with that than my shitty abilities to like sell a banana (laughs) blowjob. I was not a great banana blowjob salesman. Um, It's hard to be unapproachable and intimidating and also sales oriented. These things don't really go great together. Uh, so yeah, after that first busted engagement, uh, we drove around a bit and then we just kind of stopped at a diner cause she was trying to see if her booker could like get her another gig that night. Um, but she didn't get one. So I drove her home. But during that time I did get to hear all about her life and, uh, any hopes, or fantasies I may have had about maybe having sex with her in the near future were quickly dashed. Which, of course, sex with a stripper was in my mind when I accepted this this gig. It wasn't the main reason. Like I had no intention of initiating any advances or being a creep, but I thought going into it, if at some point when I drop her off at home... And if she happened to invite me in for a drink, I wouldn't say no. But that first night it was too much information too soon about her trials and tribulations and traumas. And I thought to myself, I really hope I don't end up fucking this girl. <laughs> because that was about as much control I had over my sexual interactions at that time. As I hope I sleep with her or I. To hope I don't sleep with her. I didn't really have a full control over the outcome. Like if a woman came on to me aggressively, the only defense I had was to just avoid all interaction with her whatsoever. So I may have understood conceptually that a a sexual relationship with someone is a bad idea, but if they put the slightest pressure on me, it was gonna happen. I just fold. I didn't have the capacity for a free will that was detached from my 25-year-old dude biology. <laughs> and I also hadn't developed the skills for deflection yet. I was probably 35 before I was confident in my ability to, to not have sex with someone I wasn't attracted to and also not hurt their feelings too much. If that makes sense. <laughs> All I could really manage at that time in my 20s was completely avoiding situations where sex was likely to happen if I did not want to get entangled with a particular woman. Uh, So why did I feel sleeping with Alex was a bad idea? Not because she was a stripper. That, That was still in the plus column when I was in my 20s more like if I tell people the cliff notes of my life story, and I kind of do it pretty often because of my work, I see new clients all the time, and at some point they'll ask me how I got into doing what I do, so to keep the conversation going, I'll give like a brief synopsis of life events that got me into what I do for a living, and at this point, I'm pretty bored with that story, but it pretty much follows, uh, I did this, and then I did that, and then that led to this opportunity, which led me to this, you know, it's kind of like I try to own the choices I made with the resources I had at the time and the opportunities available to me, available to me at the time. And even though the outcome, is not what I intended at the beginning and is never fully satisfying. I'm still accountable for where I'm at. I still made those decisions. Some people tell their life story more passively. Like, this happened to me, and then that happened to me, and then that's how I ended up here in this tragic place. And that is what I call junkie talk. If you've ever talked to someone who is kind of in and out of rehab all the time, they typically talk like that. But I've met a lot of people who didn't have drug or alcohol issues who still talk like that. It's kind of nothing is their fault, but also simultaneously they deserve whatever happens to them. And a lot of times it's not their fault. But it's kind of stuck in a victim mentality, I guess is what I'm getting at. It's, it's like they're clearly still consider themselves powerless to change anything. Um, and Alex was one of these people, and I guess I was, you know, in my young aspirations of my young writerly aspirations. I was kind of hoping to be a tourist in her world, and but make sure I only drank the bottled water. You know, I wanted to run my fingers over the candle flame and feel the fire without getting chlamydia. And to be fair to Alex, because I did like her, she was really cool. She did have a pretty fair go of it, or a pretty hard go of it, rather. She was a little older than me, maybe like 28 or 29, and she grew up in the Nashville suburbs. Her mother had some pretty bad mental illness, I think like bipolar or something like that, and her dad was an asshole. And of course, there was some sort of sexual assault as a child. I want to say maybe her older brother. Maybe your dad. I don't, I don't really remember. It's been 20 years. And then the real kicker was uh, like at 18 or 19, she got meningitis and almost died. Like uh, the kind that like swells your brain. Like a, I don't know if it's bacterial. Yeah, I think like a bacterial meningitis. And she was, you know, and this was maybe 10 years before. And she was still paying off the medical bills from that because she had like no help from her family, no health insurance or anything. And then add in a few shitty boyfriends who took advantage of her and stole what little money she had and kind of clearly her choosing men similar to the men she grew up with. And she told all of this to me on that first night and then repeated it every weekend I drove for her, which is, I've kind of run into that sense where people have experienced trauma. It's like they get stuck in a loop and it's just whatever that trauma was or traumas, like it's just over and over and in their life and in their head. Um And I'm fucking dumb enough, like I try to help them out of it <laughs> with logic and I'm constantly reminded that I'm not qualified to do that. <laughs> of course, the way out seems clear to me. I'm not living in it, but I don't know what I'm talking about, so stop trying to fix people, Patrick. Um... Like, is there anything more useless in life than logic? I mean, forget about logic being racist. I know, I know now it's racist, but what does it matter if logic is racist when it has no ability to compete with our obsessive self-indulgence? Like, Logic is an unemployed West Virginia coal miner. Logic is Joe the plumber. It's a suburban hockey mom. Invisible and irrelevant and ineffectual and guaranteed not to help your election prospects. But Alex was really cool. She was genuinely nice. Uh, and in spite of everything that had happened to her, she kept on grinding and hustling. Um, She's adamant about staying away from drugs. She probably had been around a lot of that. I think, uh, that's why she said she stopped working at strip clubs, because I guess, I don't know, the drug scene there was pretty vibrant. Um, it's funny, whenever I hear about the debate over who should pay for healthcare in this country, I think of Alex. Cause I'm pretty sure stripping was not her dream in life, but it was the best option available. Pretty much how I got into personal training. Like, I fucked up somewhere. Maybe it was my fault. Maybe not. I don't, I still don't know. But watching people do squats all day was definitely not my highest aspiration in life. I could have tried stripping. Maybe I could have done that. Just have like obnoxious, rosé-fueled housewives just grabbing up my junk every weekend it's probably a more respectable occupation than personal training i would say the occupational respectable respect the occupational respectability scale goes it starts at at the bottom we're starting from the bottom up goes improvisational comedy performer is the worst least respectable then stand up comedian then real estate agent, then children's birthday clown, then go-go dancer, then personal trainer, then male stripper, and then maybe life coach, then female stripper, then gay male stripper, then doctor, then prostitute is above that, and then finally at the tippy top, the most respectable occupation you could get is black male drag queen. And any occupation or job that is not on that list, like computer programmer or tree logger, coal miner, lawyer, university professor, all other occupations are ultimately criminal enterprises and scams perpetrated by fucking hucksters and not legitimate. So for stripping, for home order stripping, for uh pizza deliver delivery style, DoorDash stripping, the bread and butter is birthdays and bachelor parties. I drove Alex for maybe fifteen engagements. Maybe not that many. Somewhere between like twelve and fifteen. I really only did it for about like ten weeks. Um and usually had like a Friday and a Saturday, sometimes only one, one of those days. Um, only two of them, I think, were not a birthday or a bachelor party. And one of those was an anniversary where the husband ordered Alex for his wife um, so she could like dance around and strip for his wife, kind of for him, but mostly for the wife because she was kind of, you know, buy, I guess. Um, and which sounds hot and would have been hot Except the husband and wife were unattractive, overweight, goth, emo people. <laughs> but they were cool and they seemed like pretty sweet and nice. So I kind of hung out in the kitchen. Kind of out of the... They were in the living room mostly. And so I just kind of hung out more in the kitchen area. Just give them a little more intimacy. You know, they Alex didn't really need me trying to sell banana blowjobs to them. They were down for all that shit. Um... And I'm sure after we left, they had amazing, unathletic, Wiccan cuddle sex. (laughs) I'm I'm sure they burned the house down with the hundred candles they lit. Um, And the other one was like a frat party. The other one that wasn't a birthday or bachelor party was a frat party at uh, Vanderbilt's, which I think they claim is the Harvard of the South or something. I don't know. These fucking college kids. Um, and that was the only time I had to check, it was the only time I had to kind of check someone in a mildly threatening way, because one of the frat kids was just being overly obnoxious and douchey and a little too handsy, and, uh, I told, told him he was done, and he had to leave the room. Um, this, I guess, this was like a, it was like a big house, I guess that's what frat houses are, I haven't really been to many, um... And then this was in, like, a like an upstairs kind of living room area. Just a big room. Um, and I was like, all right, you got to go. You got to go downstairs. You have to leave the immediate area. Um, and then that was it. And his friends were, all the other dudes, his friends were clearly, like, embarrassed and falling all over themselves, apologizing. And I could tell the kid, you're just being a douche to kind of seem cool in front of his friends. But... They hustled him out pretty quick, so it wasn't that big a deal. Um, and Alex, Alex didn't really have a hard line on touching, because I asked her that first night, like what her policy was. Um, and that's, she said she'd like give me a look if I should step in, and she didn't tell me what the look would be, but she gave it to me that night with that kid, and uh, it was pretty clear. <laughs> Like she gave me the look and I go, Oh, that's the look. And, uh, I stepped in and it really wasn't that big a deal. Uh I guess, I guess people learn strip club etiquette from like movies and TV, which is, it's always look, but don't touch. But unless, you know, it's clearly prostitution happening in the back. It's either one of those two things. It's either look, but don't touch, or this is actually a whorehouse. <laughs> um, but I haven't really found that either of those are really true uh, or accurate. It, I think it just depends on the stripper and how she feels about whoever owns the lap she's sitting on. Because I've seen women in a strip club get away with basically finger-fucking the girl, the stripper. Like a woman in a strip club just basically having her... Not basically, like actually just having, you know, three fingers up there, (laughs) up the stripper. And I've seen slippers kind of like strippers, like slap a dude's hand that kind of brushes her thigh, but then keep dancing. And I've never seen a stripper get up and leave in a huff or run away crying. Like I haven't been to that many strip clubs, so I'm sure it happens, but you know. It wasn't the norm from what I've seen. Um, and I never really see uh, Alex. You know, I don't know. She was good. She was kind of like, she'd walk into the room and just set the tone, which was kind of a, which was what I found most impressive. She walks into a room full of mostly dudes and just sets the tone for how the night's going to go. And then that one time was the only time this... Dumbass kid was drunk and clearly just wasn't reading the room. He wasn't reading the vibe. Um, so it's pretty interesting. Like, yeah, I never had to step in because Alex just, she just put it out there subconsciously. Um, like these are what the rules are. Um, and she let, you know, some dudes would touch her, seeming like a lot to me, but she didn't mind. She could just manage it. It wasn't really, um, and that's the whole scam of stripping, and it is a scam. <laughs> and the scam is to keep you peeling off twenties for as long as possible. Just one more song, one more dance, one more banana blowjob. You know, it's the same as gambling. It's the same as uh, carnival games. You roll the dice one more time. Probably probability says you're due to hit seven sometime. Or buy another three balls. You're so close to getting that gigantic plush panther. I won one of those once for a girl at Hershey Park. A giant stuffed panther. Which probably cost them about $5. It cost me about $45. And it was some of the best money I ever spent in my life. Because the scam is fine. I don't, I don't call these things a scam to be disparaging. You can have a great time engaging in a scam so long as you keep account of your finances and manage your expectations. You get a nice hormonal rush out of the experience and hopefully a fun story. And just keep in mind that like life, the experience has no enduring essence and will never be completely satisfying. Although winning that giant stuffed panther came pretty fucking close. That was pretty satisfying. Uh, One of the cooler engagements we worked was an El Salvadorian birthday. I don't know if everyone was El Salvadorian, but I saw a lot of tattoos that said El Salvador and also a lot of Virgin Mary tattoos along with those. And a fair amount of bling. Was it a gang party? I don't know. I still don't know. (laughs) It didn't have like the vibe of what I would think of like a Latin gang would be. Like an MS-13 gang with... There definitely weren't like copious face tattoos. Um, It didn't make me think of an American me. If you've ever seen (laughs) that disturbing movie. (laughs) It was not really a, a Vatos Locos Forever, man. It wasn't one of those. Um, it was a big house party in a nice, you know, McMansion type house in a nice neighborhood in a Nashville suburb. Um, but it had like a working class vibe. Um, some dudes were hanging out in suits, some in wife beaters, and then mostly high end SUVs parked along the streets i didn't really see lowriders although i don't know if that's only a mexican thing or a latin thing in general i'm not quite sure i'm not up on lowrider culture um there's a lot of booze a lot of weed but i don't remember seeing any hard drugs around uh if it was a gang party it was like a latino sopranos kind of vibe (laughs) Um, but maybe every maybe everyone was a software engineer. I don't know. But it was really cool. Everyone was having fun. And then there were like six other strippers there. Because this was like a big party. So they just called a bunch of strippers. One was not enough. They wanted a house full of them. Although I was the only like babysitter slash driver. All these other girls came alone or they came in pairs together. Uh, which Alex did sometimes. I guess like if she couldn't get me, she would like she would go with another stripper friend of hers and they would drive for each other just for like safety's sake, like, you know, safety in numbers or something. Um, yeah, and a couple of them, a couple of these other strippers gave me their numbers and, you know, tried to hire me. They tried to poach me from Alex because I guess it's hard to find, you know, a reliable dude to drive for you because it's not a real job. <laughs> And uh the only time I got a little worried at this one was when uh one of the like I got I don't know, I think they were all girlfriends, maybe they're wise, but one of the girlfriends of one of the guys got really mad when uh he participated in the lollipop squat trick with Alex. <laughs> The girl he was with was not into that. Um, and I was I was a little worried because it hadn't really occurred to me previously that I might have to defend Alex from a jealous girlfriend. I was worried about like gang rape and me being murdered along also by a bunch of dudes. Uh up until this point it, it hadn't even crossed my mind that there might be a jealous girlfriend who was looking to cut a bitch (laughs) like that was a new that was a new hazard I hadn't considered but no knives came out and Alex made at least $1,200 for like two hours work that night Um, that was by far the most profitable profitable night I worked and then the last night I worked when a knife did come out was at a biker birthday party and it was not a biker gang party it was, it was not a blackout, rowdy Sons of Anarchy party. It was more of a middle-aged, upper-middle-class, Harley-Davidson enthusiast's birthday party. You know, just some dudes with some money who liked riding Harleys. And that was pretty laid back. That one actually reminded me a lot of my team leader's birthday where I met Alex the first time. It was maybe eight guys, all of them like fifty or above, like between fifty and sixty. Um and they were all like Vietnam vets. Uh and I think the guy's birthday was I think he was a software engineer. Um and it was kind of it was kinda like a Vietnam movie almost. Like they had the cast of characters from the Vietnam <laughs> movies I've seen. They had a uh yeah, this guy who was pretty cool and laid back. He was kind of like a bigger guy, bald. He had a big handlebar mustache. Um, there was kind of a hippie guy, like a hippie '60s biker guy, um, kind of like a like a commie rant against the government, kind of Vietnam guy, and then uh, a couple other guys. And then there then there was kind of like the crazy guy. <laughs> <laughs> he he's the one who pulled the knife out, uh, not in a dangerous way. Um, he was sometimes at at these things. There there'd be one or two guys who try to buddy up to me, which I didn't quite understand. Um, I don't know why. It's like they don't want to watch the stripper. They want to talk to me, and that was weird because I'm like, dude, there's a naked girl over there. Like, put down a twenty and get a banana blowjob. Like, stop fucking talking to me. I don't know. I think some guys were just uncomfortable with a naked girl. Or sometimes, a couple times a guy would come up and he'd be like, he would try to really reassure me that nothing bad was going to happen. And that would make me nervous. <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's like, dude, that is in the back of my brain because that's why I'm here. That's why she's paying me 50 bucks plus a percentage of the tips is because... It might happen that you guys rape and murder her. That's why I'm here. Mostly I'm kind of here just to make sure you don't take advantage of her, but that's the extreme case, however unlikely. That's why I'm here. I don't need you to remind me that that's a possibility. I don't need you to reassure me that it's not a possibility. That made me more nervous. Uh, yeah, not every time, but a couple times, some guy just roll up, just to reassure me that nothing bad would happen. I go, dude. <laughs> now I'm more nervous. Now you're making me wish I brought a gun. Um, so this one with the the biker nom guys, um, the the crazy guy, he was like a little curly, squirrely crazy guy. Um, kind of cool, kind of fun to talk to. Clearly uh an incorrigible liar <laughs> like immediately he was like oh you're in the army you know suddenly he was special forces he was a navy he was like a ranger he was a navy seal he'd been promoted demoted which i i, don't, I think that was more of a thing back in the day you could like be demoted in the military and then be promoted and it wasn't a big deal when i was in if you got demoted you're kind of done there was none of this back it was more professional And a little more strict in some ways when I was in. Um, More corporate, definitely. It was like, if if you get in trouble so much, you get demoted, you're just kind of done. You might as well. If you're not kicked out, you might as well get out when your time is done. Because you don't really have much of a career. Because those kind of things would carry with you more. I think in old-timey days, it was more forgivable. You could get demoted. You could get a DUI and kill somebody and... They demote you a little bit, but then after a year or two, all's forgiven and <laughs> you get promoted again. <clears throat> so maybe he wasn't lying about that, but um, there's a lot of old nom guys. It seems like they were all fucking airborne rangers. It's funny. So I'm we're sure this guy was lying, but I didn't care. I never cared about stolen valor. Who gives a shit? Um, and then, you know, these were bikers still. They weren't a biker gang, but they all were carrying like big belt knives just out which i always assume is like illegal there's i know like every state has a has a size limit on a knife you can carry on your person um, these are just big like rambo knives on their belt so so this guy is freebasing cocaine he keeps talking about like going out and going somewhere going to the bar and like every all these dudes were like 50 and they're like, go out. What do you, we're not going anywhere. But this dude is hopped up on Freebase and cocaine. So he's just itching to get out. He wants to go out to a bar or to a strip club. I don't know where he wants to go. All these other dudes are just smoking, you know, they're just drinking, smoke a little weed. He's the only one just, and I'd never seen anybody Freebase free cocaine before because that's like an old school thing. Even back, you know, this is 2002. That was an old school thing. Um, I don't think at that point I'd ever seen anybody smoke anything out of a glass pipe like that. <laughs> I had to ask the hippie guy, uh, cause the guy left and I asked the hippie guy, I'm like, what the fuck is that guy smoking? Cause I assumed it was crack and I'd never seen anybody smoke crack either. He's like, Oh, he's freebasing. I'm like, Oh, I remember Richard, F- Richard Pryor set himself on fire doing that when I was a kid. <laughs> that was that was my only experience with freebasing. So this guy is just kind of crazy. He's high. Um, and then at some point he sits down and he just pulls out his knife and shows it to me. He just wants to talk about knives and, but I'm like, dude, I'm here with a naked girl and you just pulled out a knife. <laughs> I'm not comfortable. <laughs> so he hands me his knife and I, I hold the knife and I compliment it, you know, say like, yeah, that's a great, yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's a great knife. <laughs> and I give it back. Uh, And that was the last time I did it. It's kind of after that. I'm like, that was cool, but that could have gone bad. It could have gone bad easily. And I didn't need the money. Um, I was just doing it for the story. I felt I had the story. And I don't even know if they were stories. You know, these were more little vignettes. Um, But mostly I stopped because it wasn't that fun. Like, it's fun now to think about it. But at the time, it was just one of those things that, like, it wasn't fun. It was interesting. But every time, you know, I had a fair amount of anxiety. And also, I didn't really know what anxiety was back then because I'm not an anxious person. Mostly, I knew I was nervous whenever I had to jump out of a plane. But then you jump out of the plane and you're like, okay, that's over. That's fine. I didn't dread jumping out of the plane. It's just you get in a plane, you know, you're going to jump out. You got some nerves, you know, and it comes and goes in waves. But I knew how to handle that. But that's also a very controlled situation. Um, where these were completely unknown situations. I had no idea what I was getting into. It was probably going to be fine, probably going to be cool. Maybe somebody might be a dick or they might be cheap. But, you know we both might get raped and murdered (laughs) also. (laughs) So that made it not fun. Um, It was kind of like, I felt like an anthropologist visiting a tribe of friendly cannibals. It's like, yeah, they're pretty cool. It's interesting. I never met anybody who ate anybody before. That's a cool story. And they smile a lot. They seem really friendly and, their culture and their customs are different than mine and they love their kids but there's always however unlikely there's always a chance that they could decide to turn me into brisket